This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Okay, so um, today's talk is uh, titled The History of Self and No Self in Buddhism, The Four Turnings. So given I only have uh, 20 to 30 minutes on this topic, it will be a highly abbreviated uh, version but I wanted to get across an overall view of this topic in this talk as an introduction to what we'll be covering in the next two days. And I sent you out some readings that go with the Dharma talk today. So if you didn't have time to have a read of them during the morning, you'll have plenty of time in the afternoon. So I'm going to start off with a quotation from a a collection of koans uh, called the, uh, the transmission or transmitting the light or the record of transmitting the light translated by Francis Cook and um, this particular collection of koans were collected and compiled by uh, Dogen's successor Kaizen and basically it's um, it goes through all the, the Zen Buddhist ancestors and the stories of enlightenment, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha, the original historical Buddha, going through all the Indian ancestors, down through all the Chinese ancestors, and finishing with Dogen and, uh, and Kun Ijo. I think Kaiser might have been the the, 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 the second successor of Dogen, actually, but I'll, ha I'll have to look that one up. Anyway, the first uh, this first story about Shakyamuni is the um, basically, as you all know, he uh, wandered in the forest and was engaged in ascetic practices for a long time, and then he gave them up and sat beneath the Bodhi tree. And some say he sat for seven days and nights, some say he sat for 40 days and nights. And then in the morning, Shakyamuni Buddha saw the morning star and was enlightened. And he said, quote, I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way. I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way. Later, he transmitted this treasury of the eye of true of Dharma to Mahakasyapa, the second successor. The so-called I in this case is not the person, personal I of Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha also comes from this I. If you want an intimate understanding of enlightenment, you should get rid of you 
and Gautama at once and quickly understand this matter of I. I is the great earth and beings as and. And is not I, as in the old fellow Gautama. We need to examine this carefully and deliberately and clarify this I and this and. This being so, I and and are neither identical nor different. Truthfully, your skin, flesh, and bones and marrow are totally and. The Lord of the house is I. It has nothing to do with skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, nor has it anything to do with the four elements or the five aggregates. Ultimately, if you wish to know the undying person in the hermitage, how could it be something separate from this present skin bag? Beautiful words. So I've... Um, I emailed to you a little diagram, which I've called the uh, stages of practice. So like, you know, in any kind of stages of practice talk, it's always a simplification, uh, but sometimes it's helpful to have a roadmap as the saying goes these days, everybody wants a roadmap. So this is your roadmap to enlightenment and beyond. I should send it to our prime minister, Mr. Morrison, Okay, now, so the four stages of practice, basically I've drawn a triangle if you don't have it in front of you. And on the left hand corner at the bottom of the triangle, I've written egocentric self and conventional duality. In other words, the, uh, the egocentric self is where we all start from. Hopefully we've developed a little bit of an ego by the time we're in our adolescence. And we live in the world of conventional duality of us and them, I, me and mine, and so on. Then, of course, in this particular first stage of practice, we all at some point in our lives begin to suffer. And if we're lucky, we start to go seeking uh, for some answer to this suffering. And if we're lucky, we develop what's called in Buddhism, the, uh, the way finding mind, which hopefully eventually uh, takes us to some kind of teaching that is helpful and re relevant for us. I'm just going to close this door because there's a bit of a noise coming. So that's the first stage. We suffer and then we seek and uh, and then we find maybe a, a, someone like Joko Beck and we start practicing Zen. And, um, and I've sent you out um, a copy of Joko's first book called Everyday Mind and uh, Everyday Zen, I think. And uh, in that book, there's a chapter I recommend you read called Building a Bigger Container. So, Joko recommends we develop what she calls the observer self and um, the observer or the witness who starts to notice that 
we have all these thoughts and all these feelings coming and going, all these various narratives of our lives, and we notice how we get reactive and caught up in all that. <coughs> in other words, when we step back and start to observe our lives, if we do that rigorously and continuously while practicing Zen and continuing that for a number of years, we start to get some insight into how we get caught up in our own personal drama, our own personal soap opera, as Joko likes to talk about. In other words, how we get identified and caught up with our separate self and how that leads to various reactions, such as anger or shame or jealousy, all those kinds of difficult emotions. And of course, the, and, and some of the big ones like loss and ultimately death. When we practice this stage of this, these particular stages of spiritual practice are not just unique to Buddhism, you'll find them in other traditions as well. So in this first stage, it's often referred to in, say, the uh, Avaita Vedanta tradition in India as neti neti or not this or not that or the via negativa in Christianity. So it's the sense of and in, 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 in uh, early Buddhism, in the, the Pali suttas, there's a big emphasis on anatma, on no self. Uh, in other words, we start to notice how the what we take as our personal self is actually just like a, uh, a fragmented process of um, of different eyes, of different feelings and different emotions which are coming and going. Uh, which have a discontinuity about them. And, uh, and so in, in Joko's phrase, building a bigger container, is the container is the observer self. And the observer self provides us with some sense of continuity. In a sense, the observer uh, observes this, 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 this ongoing process of uh, impermanence and interdependence arising and falling from moment to moment with no permanent center or self to be found anywhere in that process. So that obviously then raises the question of who am I? If I'm not my particular personal identity, you can go through all the various I am's, this or that or whatever, and uh, Ultimately, they're all impermanent and changing and transient. So who really am I in the midst of all of that change? So that, that question then uh, takes us to what's ultimately the... Uh, so in a way, the observer self, identifying with the witness, is a kind of intermediate stage between being totally identified with the ego and totally caught up with our suffering to, to actually stepping back and getting a little bit of distance from the ego and hopefully not getting so caught up in, in that. And we'll talk a little bit more about one of Joko's meditation techniques at the end of the talk. So the next stage is then asking that sort of question, who am I, which again you'll find in Buddhism and other traditions. And that leads to hopefully the realization of what is sometimes referred to in Buddhism as no self self. Um, again, uh, quoting from this transmitting the light collection of koans and the fifth ancestor, 
called Dritaka, talking about home leaving as we were yesterday. And uh, it starts, the case starts by saying, because one who makes his home departure or her home departure and becomes a monk is a selfless self, is selfless and possesses nothing. And because the original mind neither arises nor ceases, this is the eternal way. All Buddhas are also eternal. The mind has no form and its essence is the same. You must become thoroughly awakened and realize it with your own mind. Truly, this home departure reveals the self, which is a selfless self. The self, which is a selfless self, is the eternal way. This mind has no form, even though there is hearing, seeing and perception. In the end, it neither comes nor goes, neither moves nor is still. Another name for this mind or no self self is Buddha nature or true self. And uh, that's the realization of non-duality, of justice, realizing our mind. And uh, so that's the kind of um, Buddha realizing the Buddha centric self, the realization of essential nature, which is seen as the beginning on the Zen path. And uh, once we've, we've realized that with some clarity, then the final stage is the integration stage. It's the integration of our egocentric self and all the historical residues of our egocentric self into the ever-present Buddha-centric self. And that's a journey of a lifetime. So if we have this movement around the triangle, starting with our egocentric self, moving to the observer witness, coming back up to the non-dual realization, the non-dual self, the no-self self, and then coming back again into our everyday life and integrating the no-self self into our everyday life, which is a lifetime journey. So that's a little bit of a summary of the stages of spiritual practice. Um, now I want to talk about uh, what's sometimes talked about in Buddhism when we're talking about the history of Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, especially Mahayana Buddhism. They wouldn't talk about this in terms of the, the Pali teachings in Burma or, or uh, Thailand. But uh, from the Mahayana perspective, they sometimes talk about these, what they call the three turnings of the wheel. And uh, some Western uh, commentators, such as Ken Wilbur, um, has coined the term the fourth turning of the wheel. Um, so that's not yet established in the, in the Buddhist community as a, as a definite fourth turning of the wheel. But uh, we'll get to that in a minute because it's an interesting concept. So the first turning of the wheel you're all familiar with. And you find the first turning of the wheel is that the teachings in the, the Pali manuscripts, the Pali sutras. And you'll all be familiar with the four uh, noble truths or as um, Stephen Batchelor likes to call them, the four tasks. Um, so the four noble truths are one, suffering and the importance of understanding suffering, that, that life existence is suffering. The arising of suffering, 
and to let go of the arising of suffering, the ceasing of suffering, and to witness the ceasing, and the path to ending suffering, to cultivate the path, the eightfold path, which starts with right view and right understanding. And so that was the first turning of the wheel. And uh, now in that particular teaching, of course, you'll find in the Pali Sutras and in early Buddhism, this real uh, focus and attention on what they call the Anatman, and Atman. So in Indian spirituality, Atman is self with a capital S. And the early Buddhist teachings taught an Atman, that is no self. And what they were referring to in that is no personal self that's permanent. There's no soul. And uh, in terms of this notion of reincarnation in the early Buddhist teachings, uh, it was actually seen as being eventually the actual petering out of the desire, the petering out of the separate self, which led to liberation, the Arhat ideal. And um, and in these Pali Sutras, we find the emphasis on the three marks or characteristics of existence being there's no essential self, no permanent self, no essence that is unchanging. Everything is impermanent and interdependent. And uh, so it's understandable that our suffering arises when we're when we're clinging or attached to something we want to hang on to that is pleasurable or that we like or that we, we care for. And the suffering also arises when we're experiencing something we don't like uh, that's painful and we want to push away or we feel adversive towards. So we've got these, 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 these notions of, a, of a, a attachment or clinging and pushing away or aversion which is the activity of suffering, the activity of the separate self being being caught in this illusion that there is someone who is suffering. So we can see also, apart from being attached to ourself, you know, precious me, we can also get attached to the possessions that we think belong to us, whether they be uh, our partner, our children, our house, our car or whatever. So we get attached with those kinds of possessions as well. So of course, from the Buddhist point of view, everything is impermanent and transient, and we're going to eventually lose everything. So um, in, in, the early, in the early Buddhist teachings, unless we see through the illusion of a separate permanent self, we are doomed to suffer because we are grasping onto something called me and mine, which doesn't exist. So the path to the ending of suffering is a gradual path. In those early teachings, it was something that went on for lifetimes. It's a progressive path where we develop skills relating to compassion, mindfulness, and wisdom. The skills of the Eightfold Path being skillful understanding or view, skillful thought or intention, skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood, skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, and skillful concentration, leading to liberation from suffering. Also in these early Buddhist teachings, there was a tendency towards a reductionism. In other words, there was a, 
the the notion of a, like an a, atomic kind of microscopic reality was present in the early Greek philosophy. It was also present in Indian philosophy before we started talking about atoms in the West. And uh, in early Buddhism, there was a kind of these atomistic moments or dharmas, which were seen as being very, very fleeting. In other words, they, they didn't even have any re, uh, duration or temporality, but they were seen as being somehow the, the kind of grounding, the permanent grounding of being. And everything else was made up of these fundamental dharmas. But like in the same way as you could take apart a carriage or you take apart a car, you could take apart a person, and, that, and the person is just reduced to these, these 300 or so dharmas. And uh, that was the kind of deconstructive analysis that they did in early Buddhism. But interestingly, there, was, there were some sort of um, of these Pali sutras that pointed to a slightly different understanding, a more direct liberation from suffering, a more non-dual understanding. And one of those particular sutras, the Bhaya Sutra, I sent you a copy of, and uh, I'll um, I'll talk more about that at the ending of our. Uh, Actually, I, I might actually read it now because it's very interesting. Um, so in, in, in the in the Bahia Sutra, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. It has a more subtle kind of instruction uh, and, and a more subtle kind of insight into all of this. And it kind of like implies rather than freeing oneself from desire, all we have to do is to see clearly that there is no experiencer. Um, and the, the notion of an experiencer is something we've been conditioned into thinking exists. So in other words, I, Andrew, experience loss. I, Andrew, experience jealousy. But rather than, you know, rather than reducing this to some metaphysical notion of, of atomistic dharmas, this particular sutra is a, is a more subtle teaching. If we see clearly that there is no self, then that in that moment of seeing is the end of suffering. There's no one who suffers in that seeing. That's the end of psychological suffering. There's no psychological suffering if there's no one, no experiencer who is suffering. So this is, an, this is, this is a kind of, uh, in a sense, uh, an introduction to non-duality in these early uh, uh, Pali suttas, non-separation or non-duality, which is very central in Zen Buddhism. Um, I will, no, I will, I'll return, I'll re return to the sutra at the end of the talk because I want, I want to finish on a practical level. So the second turning, so, that, so that's the first turning, the, the the four noble truths. The second turning is referred to, and we've talked about this earlier in the year, as the emptiness teachings. So the emptiness teachings are most famously coded in the Heart Sutra. And so they're called the Prajnaparamita teachings. That's called the Mahayana Buddhism. So that starts to develop around about the third century of the Common Era. And it gradually got introduced into Tibet and China. So that the second turning, the Prajnaparamitings or the wisdom beyond wisdom teachings, 
right from the get-go in the Heart Sutra, there is no thing. There is no thing. Not even the atomic atoms or the, the atomic dharmas are real. Um, from the Heart Sutra perspective, all is empty, as in all has just a interconnected flow and flux. Um, and following the teaching of non-separation and non-duality, it's all interdependent. There's no thing that exists separately. It's emptiness everywhere. Uh, but in the Mahayana teachings of the Heart Sutra, you get this distinction between the two truths, the, the relative or conventional truth and the essential or absolute truth. And the conventional truth is that things exist only relatively, but we need to be able to negotiate our way through our lives and uh, relating as if things did exist. So we talk about objects and things as if they exist. That's how reality goes around. Uh, but from the Heart Sutra perspective, that's just an, an illusion which is conventional. But even though it's, a, it's an illusion, it's conventionally real. In other words, we certainly suffer when we get caught up in that conventional reality. The essential understanding is seeing that there is no, that everything is empty, everything is emptiness. So um, again, so in the Heart Sutra, there's absolutely nobody who suffers in the first place right from the beginning. So again, the experiencer disappears into the experience, leaving only what, we, what Joko Beck describes as experiencing. There's no one who is experiencing, there's just experiencing. There's no one or no separate self experiencing suffering. So when we start to translate the emptiness and sometimes we can translate as boundlessness as we did earlier on this morning, then we also get this introduction into Mahayana Buddhism of this notion of mind as well. So we're not just talking about material reality. We're also, when we're talking about the Heart Sutra, what is this boundlessness really? What, what, how is it graspable? And so, this also, this boundlessness also became interpreted as mind, as one mind, because when we're experiencing, what exactly is it we're experiencing? And uh, we're not separate from what we're experiencing. So whatever it is we're experiencing, we're not separate from it. So this realization of one mind leads also to, to what's sometimes called the third turning, which probably also developed the, the third turning teachings are known as the Yogacara teachings or the Tathagatagaba Buddha nature teachings, which probably arose round about the same time as the Heart Sutra teachings, but they have a slightly different emphasis. Um, the Yogacara teachings and the Buddha nature teachings, they wanted to sort of frame them in a more experiential way and, and make them a little bit more accessible than the Heart Sutra. And uh, so in the, uh, the Buddha nature teachings, we get this notion of the one mind or our true self. And this has a huge influence on the transmission uh, or, or into what became known as Chan in China or Zen Buddhism. So like, I'll just give you a quote from um, a teacher called Huang Bao, 
who was writing around about uh, us uh, in the Common Era, 842. He wrote a a manuscript called Transmission of Mind. So mind with a capital M, you could translate as consciousness, if you like, or Buddha nature. Anyway, this is the kind of writing we get, the kind of way in which this gets discussed from a Buddha nature point of view. Buddhas and beings are just this one mind and nothing else. From time without beginning, this mind has never been born or destroyed. It isn't blue or yellow. It has no form or characteristics. It isn't subject to existence or non-existence. It doesn't qualify as new or old. It isn't long or short. It isn't big or small. It exceeds all limits, descriptions, imitations, or comparisons. It's right here in this body. If you think about it, you've missed it. Like space, it has no borders and can't be measured. Just this one mind, this is the Buddha. There is no difference between a Buddha and a being. But beings are attached to appearances and search outside themselves, and their searching leads them further astray. Sending a Buddha to find a Buddha, using the mind to grasp the mind, they could wear themselves out for kalpas without end, and they still wouldn't find it. They don't realize that if they stop thinking and worrying about it, the Buddha would appear before them. This mind is a Buddha. A Buddha is a being. When it's a being, this mind doesn't shrink. And when it's a Buddha, this mind doesn't expand. It's a beautiful paragraph that uh, starts to convey the kind of language that um, we use to describe what is ultimately undescribable. But it's really important to start to get some understanding of the kinds of metaphors that are used in Zen to describe this undescribable reality called the one mind. And I'll be sharing some of those metaphors later on. So um, we can see that um, this Buddha nature, this one mind, is something that we actually fail to recognize because we are caught up in our self-centered, egocentric mind most of the time. So finally, um, the fourth turning is interesting. That's a a contemporary uh, idea that was introduced by Ken Wilbur. Um, It's it's arisen because of the the so many Buddhist teachers are involved in psychotherapy. And the reason for that is, as as we've talked about before, is the number of scandals that arose in the Buddhist community. It's the same way as in in, in Christianity and other religions. Of uh, uh, Buddhist teachers who had completed all their training who had um, experienced the realization of mind, still uh, finding themselves in difficulties with sexuality and alcohol and other drugs. And um, so it became apparent that the realization of the true self or the realization of mind or Buddha nature is not the end of the path. That's the beginning. Um, we also continue to, we still continue to need to do the work of 
where our blind where our blind spots are, our unconscious blind spots, our reactions or traumas from the past, and how they play out in our lives, even though we've had insights and clarifications into this one mind. So, in a sense, um, our Buddha nature is our true self, which is identical with our conventional self when you think about it. But our identical self is, is blind to its Buddha nature. But in, a, in another way, in, in, in another way, the Buddha nature also is blind to our conventional, historical, psychological self. Um, um, in other words, our Buddha nature can be blind sometimes to the, to the tricks that our true self gets up to. This has always been a contentious debate in Buddhism. Um, when the Dalai Lama was confronted with this notion, he would say, well, that particular teacher wasn't enlightened enough or hadn't had a deep enough realization. To one extent, that may be true, but there's a whole lot of work that needs to go into this process of integrating the realization of mind uh, with our egocentric self. And that process of integration, sometimes referred to as integrating the shadow, is a lifetime journey. So just coming back to the stages of practice, um, I just want to finish with a couple of practical recommendations. So with the um, with Joko's chapter um, on building a bigger container, which is um, in the section called Feelings from her first book, she basically describes the practice of how we um, find ourselves having these psychological reactions in our everyday life and uh, the importance of this intermediate step. In other words, it's really hard to go from egocentric self to oneness. Sometimes people might have a realization of oneness very early uh, in their spiritual careers but still get caught up in all the entanglements we normally get caught up with in our everyday lives. So it's really important. So Joko's big thing was this idea of building the container, meaning really developing our capacity to observe ourselves in everyday life. And, um, and one of the uh, recommendations for meditation that she would uh, often talk about, which is not unique to Joko, but she applied it to the psychological level, is to label, label particular thoughts or label particular narratives that are coming up. And, uh, and so we get some insight into where our core beliefs are hidden from us. The more we start to label our thoughts, the thoughts we have on, an, on, a, on, on a, uh, we, we start to see how we identify as a separate self and we start to get some understanding or some inkling of what core beliefs may be driving those thoughts. So for many of us, those core beliefs are things of a deficit nature, you know, such as I'm a failure, um, I'll never amount to much, um, I'm, um, I'm unlovable, um, people will always leave me, um, um, people can't be trusted, uh, lots of core beliefs you can find underneath a lot of our thoughts. So 
Joko's notion of practicing by labeling our thoughts and labeling our emotions as best we can was a way of actually trying to uncover the kind of psychological stuff that we are blind to. So that's a very, very important intermediate step. And finally, I wanted to touch on what the, the sutra that I sent you, which is a more, more of a teaching, which is probably more suited to begin with when we're doing our Zazen practice. This particular teaching is a little bit more difficult to do in everyday life, but it certainly is the beginning of the path leading to the true self. And uh, so in the uh, Bahia Sutra, which I sent to you, I'll just read to you the key, the key passage, which is about meditation practice. Um, so the, the, this, this particular person, uh, Bahia, was continued to nag the Buddha until the Buddha would give him a teaching. He just kept at him all the time. Please, oh blessed one, can you please, uh, you know, discuss the Dharma with me, teach me the Dharma, teach me the Dharma. He kept saying, Buddha said, I'm busy, I'm busy. But he said, no, no, please teach me the Dharma. So eventually the Buddha said this, okay, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. So in reference to visual, there will only be visuals. In reference to the herd, only the herd. So in reference to sounds, there is only the hearing of sounds. In reference to the sense, there's only the sensed. So in reference to sensations, there's only sensations. In reference to the cognized, there's only the cognized. So there's only the thoughts. There's no thinker behind the thoughts. There's only the feelings. There's no feeler behind the feelings. So um, this is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the seen, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then by here, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end. In this translation, it says the end of stress, but you could translate that as the end of suffering. So that's a teaching of non-duality. So, um, I will leave it at that and uh, take some questions or comments. And I can't see everybody because I've got my Zoom on a particular setting. Let me see. I get that one there.
Oh, well, look, um, so does anybody have a question? And you have to unmute yourself and uh, to raise it. I was trying to talk to you when I was muted. <laughs> ah, David. That old one, it's me. Oh, yeah, not me. Um, <laughs> Good. I'm feeling suitably confused and somewhat detached. But I was interested um, when I read briefly that little spiel you sent out this morning or last night and mentioned it again this morning about integrating the kind of the ego self, I guess, into, I guess, what you're calling the essential self. Mm -hmm. Just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and particularly like the ego self and the essential self, put them into like sort of everyday language, if you can, for me, because I, I get a bit stuck on some of these labels. Okay. It's just, it's, um, that's getting a little bit of a head. Um, the, the talk on Friday and Saturday will be moving more towards that dimension. Um, basically the um, what I'm wanting to do at the moment is and focus on what's more important is getting uh, some sense of confidence or clarity in recognizing what we're referring to as uh, Buddha nature or true self that's more important because unless we get some sense of clarity on that then um, you will not be able to integrate your egocentric self with your true self because you will not know what your true self is. Um, uh, prior prior to the uh, recognition of your true self, which is again I emphasise is available to everybody. It's not a a mystical thing. Um, one would be you know that would be quite quite okay to work at the intermediate stage of developing the observer self. So at this particular point in time, I'd rather sort of focus on our discussions this morning on either the observer self or witness and the recognition of our true self or essential self. It goes by many different names. You could simply, it doesn't really matter what you call it, non-dual awareness. It's um, those two particular steps are really important. And uh, we'll talk on Friday and Saturday more about the integration of our egocentric self or historical self, if that's okay, David. Yeah, I think that's where my question was. I said I was interested in the concept of integration, but what I want clarification, which is what you're saying you're doing today. So I guess the more you say about it yeah. now, so, the better what the terms or what where, yeah. where yeah. you're starting at. Okay, good, good. So two steps. The first one is, I think most of us are familiar with the notion of observer self or witness. I think, would that be okay with you? You're, you're happy with that? Yep. So in, in, in the sense of witnessing or observing, so like the notion that we can actually observe our thoughts, we can see clearly that we're not our thoughts because we're observing them. Similarly with sensations and uh, with... Uh, with other kinds of feelings. And so the observer self, well, it still has a kind of um, intermediate kind of 
uh, it, it's really good, but it still has a, a little bit sense of duality in the sense that there's someone observing something else. But it's an important stage, and it's a really important stage to consolidate. And some of it, and and uh, so that's what the practicing of in Joker's teaching is all about in terms of the labeling and building the bigger container. The bigger container is the observer self. And you'll find in that even in the chapter I think that I'm talking about or in one of our other chapters, she'll also mention there's a certain point where the observer self collapses. And that's that's more to the point as I was from those reading out from the the, the Bahia Sutra. So that's when you've just got there's just the hearing, there's just the seeing. There's no one experiencing that. There's, that's all there is. There's nothing observing it. It's just that. You are that. No separation. That's Buddha nature, which goes by many, many different names. And it's not something, Buddha nature is not something you can observe. It's not an object. Yeah. It's not a phenomena. It's who we are. But when we start giving it names, we get into all kinds of subtle complications, such as reifications, where we turn it into an object or something we can grasp, but it's nothing we can grasp. That's, that, that's the kind of experiential work we'll explore in the Awakening to Zen Mind meetings. So the Zen Mind is another name for it. Thank you. That's great. The other thing about Buddha nature, of course, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's not owned by anybody. We all participate in it. The one mind, which is and in the same way that the moon shines upon the sea and illuminates the sea, the one mind illuminates all our separate individual minds. We're all participating in the one mind in that, in that sense. Um, I could ask a question, or maybe a couple of questions. Um, uh, I'm wondering, look, what the relationship between Buddha mind, Buddha nature, this thing that you're describing, and like the kind of the, uh, you know, get talked about, get emphasized a lot in, in different traditions by certain teachers. Because it seems like it seems to me like maybe it's talking about something different and it's talking about something that perhaps we could have and not we could have an experience of of um, Buddha and maybe not know it. Maybe whereas it doesn't sound like you could have some great awakening experience and not know it. You'd probably know it. Um, so I think there's a question in there somewhere. Maybe could you talk about those? The difference between yeah, no, 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 the relationship that's, that's, a good, that's a good question, and the, and the way you use words, that's really interesting. So this is really important. Um, Buddha nature, Buddha mind, is not something you can experience. It's not an experience. So you may experience um, something like falling in love, but that's not the same. Um, um, 
So it's not something that you can experience. It's not an object or it's not something which can be experienced. It's not something which has temporal, which has something, which not, it doesn't begin or end. It's not, it's not a thing. It's, it's not a phenomena. It's not a process. It, it, it doesn't have any existence as such, but neither does it not exist. These are the difficulties of talking about it. We get into all kinds of difficulties trying to put this into words. It goes beyond logic in a sense. But um, it's not something that, um, it's not an event in time. It's, we're talking about another word for Buddha nature is infinite. So it's not finite. We can only experience finite things. You can't experience the infinite. It's like saying, can you experience God? Can't experience God. It's infinite. It's beyond being able to be experienced. All we experience is our own experiencing, our own mind, which is experiencing, which participates in Buddha nature. Our, our own minds are not separate from Buddha nature. So one of the, one of the common ways in which we used to get tricked in the 60s and 70s was to go in pursuit of something like some kind of experience like falling in love but it's enlightenment is not an experience it's not something which is experienced it's not falling in love although we can talk about falling in love with it but it's not it so falling in love is not it falling in love is falling in love which is very very nice pleasurable uh, Phil, and then Jack and then Angie I think so so Phil Jack Angie um, this is oh, Richard first is it okay right who was it is, is that I think it's me oh Phil okay go on yeah um, Andrew this is all a bit hard to grasp but um how does this, does this Zen saying or this idea that you come across about, and I think it mainly refers to Zazen itself, this idea of body and mind falling away? Yeah. Now, to me, that sounds like something you would experience. You would recognize, if, if you would recognize it. So, and yours, but yet you're saying that you can't experience Buddha nature directly. I, I think that's what you're saying. And yet there's talk in the teachings, of, especially in Zen, about this idea of body and mind falling away. Okay. Can I just, so am I just confused about this? It I'm does gonna, sound to me. I, I'm going to say something which is paradoxical. But most of Zen, most of Zen is paradoxical. Reality is paradoxical. Everything, everything you experience is Buddha nature, and you can't experience Buddha nature. 
I had self-thoughts for Right. Everything you experience is Buddha nature, including your delusions and illusions and, and, and getting caught up in the self-centered dream. That's all Buddha nature. I mean, the non-dual includes everything. Yeah, you're talking. But you can't you can't put Buddha nature in a bottle and say that's Buddha nature, right? Now you might. I'm not really suggesting that. I'm. I'm not. Obviously, we can't describe it because everyone who tries comes up with a different explanation. But um, I, I am still trying to get to this idea that you're not experiencing something as an observer or a self or a non-self or you know whatever whatever that thing is that's or, or that non-thing. Because it's, the Phil, the um, I mean, the metaphors that we use are really, really important. I mean, it's important to try and put this into words, which are normally metaphors. It could be space, vastness, might be light, um, could be intimacy. They're all different metaphors we can use to 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 help us recognize it. But it's kind of like um, you know the notion of we see through our eyes, but we don't see our eyes. So what we see is all Buddha nature, but we don't see the, the seeing, right? Everything we know is Buddha nature, but we don't know the knowing. So Buddha nature is like a not knowing. You know, the name for Buddha nature is not knowing. It can't be known. It's not a thought. You can't put this into a thought because Buddha nature can't be grasped by thinking because Buddha nature doesn't, well, it doesn't, it's it, a, a thought is a thought. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so Jack, or uh, was it, and then Angie, yeah. Well, Angie said she didn't actually raise her hand, but I did oh. see Pingala raise her hand, so. Okay, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I just thought I would mention um, something which you've been mentioning a little. Um, don't know mind, because I mean, one of the reasons that um, emptiness, Buddha nature, so on, are hard to grasp is that everyone uses all these different ways that sort of uh, give an, give a feel for something, like that analogy of the elephant, and there's blind people feeling different parts of the elephant and then they go oh the elephant the you know the, an elephant is a tail is a furry thing because they got the tail or whatever um and so you've got all these different descriptions and um but you know you you, you have to come back to the fact that you only um can know know it by not by dropping any concepts at all that you have about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all I want to say. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, Thank you yeah. for a wonderful talk. Yeah, it's beyond concepts, yeah. There's the old story about the Zen master sitting by the river saying, all my life I've been selling water. Um, who was it? Was it um, Pingala, was it? Was Pingala, did you have a question? Um, 
it's more of a statement really and or a clarification and i think it's already been clarified to some degree the way i'm i'm seeing what you're saying what you've talked about andrew is that um it's it's like it reminds me of the Tao in Taoist thought or even god that we are all part of of it all so it's not it's a liquid form it's not something that can be held it's it's limitless so it can't be it's boundless so it can't be held yeah yeah um and and the experiences we may have of that are they the symptoms of well the feelings we have of that are the colorings of it yeah but in it it in itself has no color but we experience different colors of it. yeah I mean, in a sense, again, we can only speak in metaphors. So Buddha nature's white light, but we just see the rainbow, right? That's just a metaphor. Don't, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like sometimes I've had the experience of just, you know, as you, the river or the water, it, there's many dimensions to one experience and it can just continue to grow and go deeper. Yeah, yeah. And, that's yeah. that's being part of the buddha nature is that true is that yeah yeah. yeah yeah ocean and waves i mean metaphors are important they're the only way we can really put this into words other than through you know uh doing other funny things like um making sounds or smashing objects or um playing charades Uh, Richard. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a question about the three turnings that you just, you took. by the way, that was a fantastic talk, really fascinating on many levels. But um, from, I've, I've heard it described the three uh, turnings in different ways, but one way that is described, I think it was a talk by Ken Wilber actually, described it in terms of the, the three paths of uh, Theravada or Burmese. Um, Mahayana, and then the third turning being the evolution of or the development of Tibetan practices of Vajrayana. So, um, is that uh, the way you described it with the Yogacara teachings and the and the um, and Chan? Uh, you would include you, you, you would you would you'd, you'd include tantra in the third turning. The third turning would include the yogacara teachings, which were influential in Tibet as well. You'd also include yeah. the the Tathagaba teachings, the Buddha nature teachings, which are influential in Tibet. You'd also include the tantric teachings as well, which were influential in Tibet and to some degree in China. That's the third turning. Yeah, all those three. Right. So Zen is part of the third turning? Well, Zen includes the second turning as well. So the Heart Sutra is central to Zen. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like the heart, the, the, the second and the third turn. Like, don't, don't think of it in terms of the third turning being superior to the second turning. No, no, they um, all but, contain each other, don't they? But the, the third turning teachings, the Buddha nature teachings and the... Um, and the Yogacara teachings were also very influential in the development of Chan in China. Yeah. And and what what would you say? I know I'm probably asking 
something that you've you've already spoken about. But how how would you characterise the the essence of the third turning? Um, yes, I'd, I'd characterise it as this uh, no self self. So um, what some of the uh, um, say the uh, the first turning teachings, like in Burmese and, and, and Sri Lanka, they were probably aghast to start talking about Atman again. But in the Buddha nature, your Gachara teaching, you start talking about self again. It's a selfless self, but it's still a self, ultimately, as the designation for the ultimate reality. So self gets reintroduced. That's the big one. Right, and so is that that would would the body body sattva uh, uh, sort of embody that? Yeah, the body sattva. Yeah, it's all one self. So we're not yeah. separate selves. It's just one self that we're all realizing the same self. That's the that's the body sattva saving all beings by recognizing all beings are just one self. That's why in the um, when 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 in the transmission of light when the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha says I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way that I is not referring to Shakyamuni Buddha that I is referring to the true self the one self mm. there are not separate beings it's just the one self and many beings sharing that one mind So there's no person ever becomes enlightened. Mm. Yeah, it's not an individual self that becomes enlightened. That's right. It's, uh, yeah. Because yeah. there never was an individual self. I'll just throw that in. <laughs> yeah. It was just an illusion. Very real illusion. No, I can't go with this stuff. Oh, oh, Michael. Hmm? Go ahead, speak. Well, you know, um, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not at peace with this material. Um, uh, last night and today, I, I went back through Barry's books and reread sections that talk about self, no self, and you know, myth of isolated mind and this sort of thing. And it, this this doesn't gel for me. This 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 sense of um, you know, when I when I read his I, I never get a sense of there is no uh, subjective self. It, it is just differently contextualized by a realization that its its essence is intersubjective and interconnected. Michael, sorry, can I just stop you there? There's, there's no one suggesting that there's, yeah, no, well, sure. there's no separate subjective self. We're all, we, are, we, we all have separate subjective selves. Yeah. So the, the, the process of the integration is being able to move between the, if you like, the one mind and the intersubjective subjective selves, the relative level. No one's suggesting that we don't have our separate minds, our oh. separate subjectivities. 
I'm not suggesting that we don't have separate subjectivities. Well, it sounds like it sometimes. I'm just suggesting that all the separate subjectivities are one mind. Expressed in all those different Sure, ways. that's okay. In fact, there are, there are probably thousands of them. <laughs> Billions, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, on... on uh, on another, on another, you know, other other levels, um, what what I was picking up and being kind of affirming is that really, uh, from the readings that I was doing, is that um, this this like again no, well no 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 enlightenment. You know, put one one of the things Barry says is enlightenment is precisely the thorough abandonment of any such notions. Um, well, that's exactly and, right. And, right. And similarly, um, uh, we <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, in emptiness, Shakyamuni discovered uh, well, basically, nothing's innate, immutable. There's no spiritual essence, um, just impermanence itself. That um, the Buddha Buddha mind is simply impermanence, simply no separation from being in, in experiencing the moment now. Yeah, I would disagree and with Barry on that me, point, Michael. That that doesn't imply that subjectivity isn't present. No, subjectivity yeah. is present, um, but like okay. I don't think well, that the one mind. I think can these be described... are important distinctions to note. What? Yeah. What is? Sorry, breaking up there. I, I acknowledge subjectivity, mm. but the the Buddha Buddha nature. I don't agree that Buddha nature is impermanence, and I don't think that's in the Buddhist scriptures. Buddha nature is neither impermanent nor permanent. That's how I would frame it. But these are just words, and not all teachers will use the same words. Can I you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, so we've got Angie and the, well, it's an it's an important difference. Yeah, there, there there are lots of differences in Buddhism and Buddhist teachings. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I, I have many other thoughts about this stuff, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. I mean, it's really important not to get bogged down in this kind of theory. It's um, ultimately it's. Um, it's got to play out experientially in our lives. That's the most important thing. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about the fine, the battle uh, yeah. is of the theory. Um, so we've got Angie and then Jack. So Angie. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah, look, I was just wondering whether um, the more words we have and the more we try and explain this stuff, the further we're perhaps getting away from, or for me, the further I'm getting away from the actual experience because it feels like the more we try and uh, talk about it and find the words, it just becomes very elusive. So, and we sort of struggle with that. Um, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's, I guess, a very... Can we, can, we, can we just, everybody, mute themselves for, the, for, a, for a moment? There's getting a bit of a distortion. Um, Angie, yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's why the... Um, I'm hoping in the... Um, with the Awakening to Zen Mind group, it'll be more experiential. These kinds of Dharma talks and discussions can sometimes get a bit intellectual and a bit heady. But so you're right, yeah. So that was Angie, and then there was someone after Angie. It was Jack, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the historical Buddha, I mean, you know, he avoided all of this by kind of laying out the path as a series of practices. So he didn't try and say, like the conversation he had with Bahia, a sort of non-dual conversation, that was rare for him. What he did was he said practice, concentration, practice ethics, practice insight. So he gave a, a prescription for, for awakening rather than trying to describe Buddha nature or something like that. Um, and also just on the point of impermanence and Buddha nature, um, what's typically how that sort of comes together or it's explained, if you like, um, is that because form and emptiness, form and emptiness are identical and that's the tricky thing. So Buddha nature is this, Buddha nature is everything. Um, but Buddha nature is also completely unknowable but as when buddha nature appears as form the form is impermanent and so that's why you get people say buddha nature and impermanence are the same thing yeah that's pretty nice that's pretty nicely put jack yeah i wouldn't disagree with that But I mean, the one thing I, I think, you know, it is important to talk about this and get some level of understanding because when we go into the realm of experiencing and on the experiential realm and we get a sense of this experientially, we still have to talk about it. Sometimes we have to talk about it paradoxically, but Angie, in reference to you, that's, um, um, I've collected some metaphors which are commonly used in, in terms of how to express this. And uh, sometimes the metaphors can be helpful. But it, it, it does get beyond, um, I mean, sometimes in the Tibetan tradition, in the Nagarjuna tradition, they get into quite elaborate sort of logical uh, arguments about this as well. But we, we don't do that in the Zen tradition. We do try and maintain it at a very experiential level. Okay, I um I don't have my um my phone with me, so I'm not quite sure what the time is. How are we going for time? Quarter past twelve. It's twelve fifteen. Uh -huh. All right, sure. Okay. So any Can other? I just... Go on. So who's David? What what uh, Jack just said right at the end sounded really good but it just kind of flashed through my mind and out again and just wondering if either you or jack could just sort of without getting into more concepts could just sort of sum up something 
Okay. Uh, all right. Sure. Do you want to go, Jack? Sure. Okay. So, um, Buddha nature is completely unknowable. It's beyond any ideas. It, it's beyond even notions of colour or anything like that. And so in Zen, they often talk about don't know mind, right? And that's a way to see Buddha nature, which is also called emptiness, which is also called a million other things. But we also have Buddha nature always appears as form. So that form can be the stapler, but it's also every emotional experience or thought or whatever. They're all forms. So Buddha nature and form are identical. And it's in form that we see impermanence. That's how, in a sense, Buddha nature or emptiness manifests in, in impermanent form as form, but it, it's impermanent. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Oh, Pink Pingler. Pingler? Um, yes, yes, thank you. Um, where does soul, like individual soul, sit in this? In a Western context, we do talk about soul quite a bit, and um, would that be there's a book the experience by, of self? There's, mm. a, there's a book by uh, a, a Zen teacher, an Australian Zen teacher called John Tarrant, who uses the metaphors of soul and spirit. Um, so he would be using the metaphor of spirit in the sense of what Jack was talking about in terms of our Buddha nature, which is impersonal. And uh, soul would be all that kind of um, what's important to us and what makes us, what we value in terms of our soulful beings as human beings, you know, like whether it's cooking a good meal, whether it's um, being intimate with friends, playing music, going for a walk, they're soulful activities. But it wouldn't be a soul in the sense of a, a notion of a permanent entity which transmigrates through different lifetimes. Hmm. There's no separate identity in Buddhism, not all the great non-dual teachings, be... there's no separate identity. Hmm. Okay, it's, it is a bit different from some other teachings, mm -hmm. of course. I mean, I guess there's different ways of looking at or <laughs> experiencing or... Because, you know, there's in some traditions that I've been connected to, it's like the soul, when, when we depart our bodies, um, the soul continues which doesn't, it's got a different reference that's as, um, as from what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, mm. you know, I mean, reincarnation was never central to Buddha's teaching, but I mean, you will find it in Tibetan Buddhism. And um, I mean, if you were to use the term soul as the process that gets transferred from one life to another, um, the soul itself is not a, still not a permanent entity. It's a collection of uh, 
energies or uh, karmic tendencies which gets transferred. And I'm not teaching that, but but that from a Tibetan point of mm. view, I, I'm, I'm not a Tibetan Buddhist and I'm not an expert in reincarnation. So I, I would refer you to the Dalai Lama about mm. that. But um, but it still wouldn't be a, a it wouldn't be a permanent soul that gets transferred from one life to the next. Like like as Jack was saying. Nothing which has form has permanence, including soul. Mm. Uh, Angie. Uh, I just would have thought that um, soul mm. didn't have form, that it was just sort of more energy and that sort of energy um, is impermanent because you can't start it or finish it. It's just my concept. Um, so I don't think it's form. I mean, I mean, I mean and, and energy is something, that's a metaphor. And uh, Joko Beck sometimes uses energy as a metaphor to refer to it. It wouldn't be the soul, it would be the spirit. But remember, though, from a Buddha nature point of view, everything is Buddha nature, including souls. But if you want to make a distinction, like, um, you can't pin Buddha nature down as a finite object which is impermanent. It, it's, it, it's beyond that, it's beyond the beyond. It's, it's, it can't be pinned down in any way. It has no limits. It's infinite. Mm -hmm. How are we going? How are you going, Mari, Catherine, Jill? I don't necessarily, necessarily agree, but it's okay. It's good. It's, there's different teachings. It's very interesting. Yeah, good. Yes, I'm not asking for people okay. to agree, no. Yeah. This is just a, 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 mm. just a Dharma talk. It's uh, not the truth. Mm. Mm. My um, uh, I don't want to get too far. My 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 son's made a made a film. It's still in action oh. about you know he's he's um and at a at um a remote um academy and well, there's a scene where there's two monks struggling and they're struggling with each other about this particular question <laughs> and they're shouting in a in a and debating it so it is a debate yeah yeah very good in in, in other world other worlds yeah 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 so we've got we've got friday and, and saturday to continue the discussion it's it's plenty of time so larry i'll make you the last one Can I say one of the issues that I struggled with when I first came across Buddha nature is that it's a translation. And with the nature, we haven't really come to that. What does that mean? It's like, are we comparing it to human nature? It's something we have. Um, I've seen Buddha nature translated as buddhiosity or buddhiness rather than a nature that we have. Um, and that, I just wanted to make, don't think of it as something that we have. It's, it's not something we possess like that. 
and that comes out in that koan as does a dog have Buddha nature? Uh, it's, everything is Buddhaness.